Welcome to Peer Pressure. Today's guest is Mike Hill of Tombs. Inside his busy schedule, he did make time to make a playlist for us. We'll be hearing some of his metal and punk choices. Do stay tuned. Thanks to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for augmenting and handling all the other podcast duties here at WFMU. Let's see if my guest is here. Mike Hill, are you there? I'm here. He is here. He is here. He is here. He is here. I sound like a Dr. Seuss exclamation. How are you? I'm doing good. Good. I'm uh, re- ready to roll. <laughs> so my guest is Mike Hill of, uh, of Tombs. And I'm really, really psyched that you're here. And thank you so much for making the time to come on the program. You're a very, very busy guy. I try to stay off the streets, you know, and try to keep myself out of trouble. Well, and you've got, uh, Tombs has quite a schedule coming up. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about it? Uh, there's just a lot of, um, there's a lot of activity on the Tombs. Yeah, I don't want to say the Tombs website because there's a whole lot of spaces. I know you have like, Bandcamp, Reverb Nation. What do you prefer as the actual tombs sort of like go to? I know there's a Facebook also. Probably the Facebook, and then for tour dates, just go to the Relapse website because they have everything up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually maintain like all the Bandcamp stuff, and you know, so it's all pretty much the sole source for touring activity and whatnot is just the Relapse website and like any kind of sort of happenings like here and there, up to date news and whatever. Facebook is probably the most uh, up-to-date thing to look at. I think that Path of Totality is streaming on Bandcamp. I think you're correct. I, th- I think I think that's possible. So, folks, I'll put up the link to the to the Bandcamp site. And if you haven't heard Path of Totality, I mean, you got to check it out. How did it feel for you? I mean, and and Mike has been a friend of FMU for over a decade. I mean, I think it was 2000 when Anodyne played here. Yeah, it was probably that long ago. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, so it doesn't seem that long ago, but I think it was. Yeah. You're more or less local, so we always have an idea of of what you're doing in terms of Path of Totality really received a whole lot of of great press and and accolades from from people high and low. How did that feel? I mean, You've been doing music for so long. Is it just, for me, I guess I kind of thought like, well, it's about time, you know, and I was actually really psyched that that you guys are getting a lot of recognition because I know how hard you work and uh, for how long you've been invested in heavy music. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, yeah, it was great. I mean, it's really nice when people recognize that, especially when it's done in print, you know, and, and, you know, people go on the line, like something and enjoy it and they're descriptive about how much it means to them and I feel like that it's good it's good for us it makes us feel really good like we're you know we're actually reach some people because you put a lot of time and effort into doing the band and you know a lot of you know hours down to practice space a lot of hours writing lyrics and you know writing music a lot of miles and hours spent on the road it's nice when it gets recognized but that's also there's a there's a sort of dark side to that too because yeah, you know, I'm always like really defensive because I can always hear the flaws and everything we do, and I can hear places where I could have done a better job and whatnot. You know, when people say, "Oh, yeah, you know, this is great, I really enjoyed it," I'm like, "Oh, thanks, thanks for not hearing all the mistakes and everything." So then, on the converse, it's like when someone is anonymously putting down what we're doing, it's like, "Oh yeah, I should have like 
redid that guitar track or I should have maybe spent more time rehearsing or something like that. You know, these days with the internet, it's easy for people to, to vent that way. Have people actually sort of inferred that you're selling out? You know, and, and it's not like you're number one on Billboard. I mean, did, did your record make it onto Billboard? I have no idea, honestly. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's not. I, it's not like it's a huge thing, but within the you know the heavy music community, you know, I mean, yeah, the internet is really is just kind of a wild card with people being able to hide and say things that you probably shouldn't even really listen to. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with the internet too is, um, I mean, if you get put on a list, you know, of like records that someone digs, and people automatically think that that's like you know this this kind of you know there's there's some sort of gain involved outside of just being on the list that someone likes, you know what I mean? And I think that perception is what drives people to, you know, try to detract from that person, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, the reality of it is, yeah, I mean, Deathful is, like, awesome, you know? It's like, they a terrorizer, like, my favorite metal magazine. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's awesome. It means a lot to us that they put us on their top ten or whatever. And, but that's really, it, it starts and ends there, though. It's not like we're playing in front of sold-out crowds anywhere. You know what I mean? Well, and nobody is announcing, like, and the number one band for 2001 on the decibel list next up is Tombs. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I mean, they, you know, it kind of... I guess I don't even know where you would use that as, like, it's on a resume. It's all part of that PR world. Do you you get a little award? Do you get, get, like, a little piece of metal? It's all part of... There's no street-level, like, meaning to it, you know? Right, It's all bullet points on some press release that someone that really may or may not be a fan of music passes back and forth by email. Well, it is an interesting concept, just the concept of, like, best of records. Um, It's subjective. I mean, music is totally subjective, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? You can't objectively say, like, this band's better than that band, you know what I mean? There's a lot of bands I love that probably people dislike. You know, there's no no absolutes in it of all a matter of taste. Right, exactly. In and of themselves lend themselves to criticism, I feel. Oh, sure they do. Well, just the way even a writer has its own style. I mean, I read certain magazines, and I look at certain writers' lists to know what not to listen to. And it's, yeah. not, and it's not a dig, but I just know, like, oh, yeah, there's stuff they really kind of listen to lighter things, or they listen to things that I, they like things that I really usually don't end up liking. So it's a quick way for me to sort of check in, but it's just a, you know... Magazine is a tool like anything else, a tool to find out hopefully where to buy something or where to go see something. Do you guys, did you just uh, finish up a video? Yeah, we just finished up a, a Scion-funded video for the song Passageways, and I don't know what this video's purpose is or anything. I just know that we had to show up at a certain place in New Jersey to shoot it. That's basically all the information I have about it. <laughs> I don't know when it's being released or or you know, what sort of part this plays in Scion's quest for world domination of the auto market. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not really certain, you know, how much of a role I play, we play in that. Well, I think that they, they somehow, they recognize that, that Tombs has a lot to offer and that people will probably watch a video of yours. And so yeah, I think, you know, I think we did a good job. I think the actual work, I think, is, is really good. I feel like, you know, we worked with this guy, Dave Brodsky. He's done tons of you know, he just did, like, a suffocation video. He did, um, you know, Cannibal Corpse. And, you know, the list goes on and on with the people he's worked with. And he got together with his crew, and they just did a great job and totally professional. And, you know, I felt like, you know, someone who actually understands what we're trying to do is, is uh, shooting and cutting it. You know, there, I did, there wasn't, like, a turn-the-crank vibe. It was, like, very organic, and there was, like, a good feel. And when I made suggestions about 
in the beginning, in the planning stages, when I suggested, oh yeah, we want this kind of feel, like he didn't fight it and he just understood what we were talking about. It wasn't so much his vision, it's like a more, almost like a collaborative kind of thing. That's great. Yeah. Well, so you're here to be a, um, a DJ, and not primarily, and of course, Tombs is the reason why you are here pretty much, for to, so that I can recognize you within your role in the music community, and uh, we want to, I wanted to talk about some things on your playlist, and the first song, do you have your playlist in front of you? I do. Oh, okay. So um, would you like to introduce the first song and tell me why you chose it? The first song is Neon Nights by Black Sabbath off of uh, the Heaven and Hell record, which came out like back in 1980. And uh, this is actually the very first Black Sabbath song I heard. I wasn't even aware of all the Ozzy records when I heard this record. You know, I was like a you know, like kid. They were like, oh yeah, check out Sabbath. And it was the Dio version of the band. Weeks later, this kid that lived down the street from me was like, oh yeah, man, my sister's boyfriend, Tom, left all his records here. And we, we were checking out some Sabbath and Deep Purple. And he played me, We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll, which is obviously the Ozzy era. You know, that, that was frightening. But my introduction to Sabbath was with Dio. The first two Dio records with Sabbath have always been, you know, really important to me, like Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell. Even though Dehumanizer is awesome, I think those two records really kick ass. I love Dehumanizer. And so when when people say Sabbath to you just in conversation, is it really the Dio Sabbath that pops up in your head? Actually, it's the Ozzy Sabbath. Actually, Sabbath to me has always been about Tony Iommi, really. Since then, I've kind of embraced more of the riffs that he wrote in those first four records as opposed to the stuff we was dealing on uh, Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. So, you know, when someone says Sabbath, I think I like, you know, now I think like Iron Man and Sweet Leaf and, you know, those types of songs. But it's neat that uh, that Neon Nights is the first, is your introduction to Black Sabbath. It's funny because I'd actually heard of Rainbow before I heard of Sabbath, you know, and and I recognized Dio's voice from Rainbow and I was like, yeah, this is like the same dude from Rainbow. Right, yeah, that, that dude. For sure. Um, well, so, uh, folks, my guest is Mike Hill of Tombs, and uh, he's going to be guest DJing today. The first song we're going to go into is uh, some Dio-fronted Black Sabbath. Please stay tuned.
And we have returned with uh, Mike Hill. Let's see. Wait, oh, you're over there. Are you there? I'm still here. Sorry. <laughs> I got this big board in front of me with all these lights. We just heard after the Dio fronted Black Sabbath. Um, why don't you talk about those other two songs that we heard? Okay, we got uh, The Antichrist by Slayer Yay. off of uh, Show No Mercy into Paralyzed by Black Flag in their final record in my head. Now, that came out like in like 85 or something like that. Though Rain and Blood is a classic record, I find myself celebrating the earlier Slayer catalog and uh, that song Antichrist to me stands out. And of course, Dissection does a killer cover of that song too. You know, likewise with Paralyzed. I know that, you know, a lot of punk hardcore sort of enthusiasts are uh, partial to the Dez or Keith Morris-fronted versions of Black Flag, but for me, the later era has always been way more interesting, you know, just on a, on a music level, and it was like real alienating to most punks at the time, but because of the kind of mixing of metal and dissonance, and you know, they all had long hair, and they were these kind of hippie, like Mansonic sort of dudes. Yeah, that In My Head record has always been with me, you know, I've always really, really gone back to that. And you're right about that era. I mean, Black Flag was definitely not embraced by a lot of punks just because of their hair, and but they were sort of nearing their end, and I, and you could feel it through those last couple of releases, I think. Yeah, definitely. And that was a lot of irony, too, because, like, you know, punk, though on paper, punk is supposed to be about individuality and freedom, but uh, I find punks to be some of the more, you know, sort of alienating people <laughs> in general. Like, unless you have the right uniform on, you know, they want it, they don't really you in some ways you, know, you have to conform to like their ideas yeah. you know, the typical punks you know I wanted to mention because you have a blog that's combined with a podcast everything went black and um, was that where you interviewed Henry Rollins for or was it for somebody else the interview is actually for Brooklyn vegan so there's a there's like a text version of that which uh, you know got edited for you know for editorial reasons we had to cut it down but the podcast has the sort of complete audio version of, um, of the interview I did with Rollins. And that was a little bit over a year ago, I think, that we did that. And what was that like? How did that opportunity come up? It's one of these things where Fred over at Broken Vegan, he, uh, Rollins had his week, he had a week run of dates at uh, Joe's Pub. He just emailed me one day and he's like, I want you to interview Henry Rollins. And I was like, of course. You know, why? that would be tremendous, I thought. Uh, initially, it was supposed to be a face-to-face -face interview, but because of some scheduling problems, we had to do it over the phone. Mm. And, uh, you know, that definitely a high point of the year for me at least and uh yeah it was great i mean i mean, I only had 30 minutes to talk to him but jammed a lot in you know rollins you don't have to go to him very much for him to talk i mean he just it's so professional about communicating with people that you just have to kind of mention a couple of key words and it just goes and that was great i didn't have to do a lot of talking in that talking to keith morris too like two of my like you know idols you know, for my whole life, I had the opportunity to talk to both of those guys, and it was tremendous. Was that also for Brooklyn Vegan, or was that for your blog? That was for Brooklyn Vegan, but once again, it was the same scenario where we had, um, for editorial reasons, we had to cut it down to, you know, a more tight, sort of concise interview. But the original transcription for that was 40 pages long. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> I talked to Keith. I talked to him for almost two hours. Wow. And that also is available on the podcast, too, like the, the audio of that entire thing. It was when Off was playing for uh, in CMJ. Mm -hmm. It was Keith, uh, Dimitri Coates, who plays guitar in Off, and uh, Mario Rubalcaba was in there for a couple minutes. Just, you know, they stopped in, kind of, you know, just kind of checked it out, and then they left. You know, I don't know, Mario Rubalcaba, who plays drums in Off, has also been in the Click Attack, Itawi, 
Black Heart Procession, Rocket from the Crypt, I think he was in. Yeah. You know, it goes on and on and on. That dude's been around. All those guys are just like lifer, you know, players. And it's, it was great. You know, it was a high point for me. Um, your focus in life, I know you as a, as a musician and, and having been in bands for a long time. Um, and I guess that I had always gotten the idea that they were part-time and you were always had a full-time job and from what i understand that that's that you you've shifted some things in your life yeah i mean uh you know i kind of try to do a lot of different things to sort of keep the ball rolling and kind of get it over the fence every month you know and and uh you know i i have a job obviously i mean i have to work especially in a city like new york where there's always some greed-minded person standing over your shoulder with his hand out you know Mm -hmm. but it's like i try to do as much freelance stuff as i can i try to do know non-committal consulting jobs but ultimately i want to just continue doing you know music and all this different other sorts of expression you know media that i'm working on and that's like been my focus is trying to keep everything rolling forward yeah because you really have a lot of stuff going on even just with tombs i mean tombs is is really well blanketed out there and uh and you did say that um you just started writing a column called Dark Entries? It's on this uh, website called Nefarious Realm, which is based out of Massachusetts. You know, Matt, the guy who's uh, behind this whole operation, is uh, also a promoter in Massachusetts, and he puts mm-hmm. shows on and whatnot, and that's how he and I met. Once he launched the site, he wanted to start, started asking people to provide columns for him, so he reached out to me, and I was like, yeah, sure, you know. There's two columns up there now, and I'm trying to do it regularly, Maybe not monthly, but like, you know, maybe every six weeks I'm trying to like put something together. And it's all sort of music related, but through my filter, you know what I mean? It's not just like a exposition about how to do things, but sort of taking my experiences with certain things and describing that in a way that would possibly be able to help other people who have maybe motivational, my God, I'm in the band for, you know, six months. We haven't been able to play a show or something. So it's just like, you know, maybe taking like my experiences and saying like, you know, hey, you just got to rehearse. You got to like keep at it. You know, that kind of thing. Kind of motivational speaking, I guess. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Nice. Um, How long have you been playing guitar for, by the way? Oh, dude, uh, let's see. Probably at least, I would say 25 years solidly, man. Like, you know. Was there any advice that you had been given when you were young that really resonated with you that you still sort of model your yourself or your life or your, your music practice on? Um, not directly from any particular person, but like just in reading, like I would say like the sort of work ethic of Greg, Greg Ginn and you know Chuck Tukowski and like what I've read about Black Flag has been like a, a real heavy influence on me personally. Mm-hmm. And you know, Rollins, like a lot of like, you know, I'm a fan of his, you know, and I read pretty much everything that guy puts out. I think early on, especially being involved in punk rock music where, you know, technique wasn't really the center point. It was more, you know, emotion that was the center point. But being able to execute things in the, to the best of your ability was the thing I took away from that. You know, I mean, you don't have to be ripping Eddie Van Halen solos, but if you can execute what you're trying to do to the best that you possibly could do, that's what I took away from those years. And I've kind of applied that to the rest of my life. And, you know, whatever whatever other things I, I get involved with, I try to spend the time, you know, and if it's worth doing, I try to put everything I have into it. Mm. And also, everything's a process. I mean, you're not going to be perfect at everything when you first start. So logging in the hours and keeping the sort of mental clarity that's required to accomplish things are sort of, you know, the things that I've taken from all those years. And so you mentioned that you kind of, people who may not know and who just know tombs would know you as being part of the metal genre. 
um, but you did, I guess, grow up sort of in the in the punk world. Um, and and what I see about tombs, and I wonder if it's any kind of conflict, um, is the the DIY ethic that you guys still seem to have within the metal world. Like, do you see? Do you have? Do you have collisions with the non-DIY ethic bands or artists? I think, like, um, you know, maybe if I was, like, in my mid-20s, I probably would have issues with some of the people that we might have had to deal with. But, you know, these days I feel that everyone has their own perspective on what they're doing, and you have to sort of let, like, roll with the punches a little bit more these days and, like, react and modify your situation to suit what you're situation you're dealing with i've spent the majority of my life like in the diy like hardcore world and we're all just self-starting and doing things on our own tombs has sort of progressed to the level where there's more of like a quote-unquote business concept and we might have to interface with people who don't necessarily have that same background but it's not that they're bad people or that they're trying to like hold us down or that they're you know like it's just what they do it's just it's just what they do man like they're just not that's not their experience and you have to sort of not be so judgmental about that right right and have you been offered things like bus tours and things like that where where i guess you you're sort of questioning if you should do something like that or not so much on the touring front traveling on a bus is not really we we haven't done any legitimate bus tours we always travel in a van or a sprinter like in europe usually travel on a sprinter there, there's a pro and a con to that i mean it, it's not like being on a bus means you're like bon jovi you know on that living on a prayer video where you know the hardships of traveling on a bus and staying in hotels i mean that's not really like your experience when you're on a bus tour like the bus tours are primarily your money that you make and your guarantee goes towards keeping the bus. everything moving forward the merchandise money is what you actually end up keeping but that model actually holds true even if you're in a van because in a van, you're paying for gas, and you know if you want to, if you have to stay in a hotel or pulls, you know, and if you end up taking a merch guy with you or something like that, the money that you make at the sh- on the shows, it typically is the same scenario anyway. You end up paying that money out just to keep everything moving forward, and then you end up just coming home with like your merchandise money is like profit, you know. But, I mean, it's not really like yeah, we're gonna buy onto this bus, and there's gonna be you know like strippers and you know like. <laughs> You know, all these groupies and, you know, going to be, like, hanging out with, like, David Lee Roth and stuff like that. That's not really how it is, you know. And I think that there's a lot of people, though, in the in the metal world um, who don't have the background that you have who do think that that's how it is. That could be true, you know. I mean, to, at the end of the day, it's just it's just a vehicle to get from show to show. Right. You know, and, like, and sometimes tours are, you know, tours are booked with that in mind because a lot of times, like, typically on a bus tour, the bus leaves at, like, 4 in the morning, the driver drives all night, and you show up at the, the city that you're playing, and the tour is routed as such, so there's, like, eight or nine-hour drives as a result of that, you know? And if you're in a van, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, cool, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's different, you know what I mean? It's just a different logistical kind of situation. Well, the responsibility is always on you. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, you don't every, have a driver. Every you know. single minute, the responsibility is on you when you're touring in a van. Whereas, you know, if you were in a bus, like you're paying for certain things, but there, there, there can be moments where you can just, you know, relax and. Yeah, totally. I mean, we um, not not in tombs, but in a different band that I played in. We were on a tour in a van, and the band that we were supporting was on a bus, and we had to like haul mm. overnight many times on that tour because. You know, was routed for the headliner, and they had you know their driver slept 
you know, they rolled in for sound check at four. The driver would have dinner. You know, he'd sleep in the bus from like seven to like, you know, one o'clock in the morning or whatever. You know, he'd be fully rested and ready to hit that nine hour drive. We were like, you know, sound checking, playing the show, selling merchandise, and then sleeping for a couple of hours and then driving. You know, there's an upside and a downside to all this stuff. I guess I was just more sort of having you compare the two worlds, and I don't know, I don't know how many times you've been up against like bus tours and that kind of thing. I mean, it, it comes up here and there, but not not really. I mean, there was like, um, you know, like I think it was Absu like three or four years ago. You know, we got offered that tour, but we ended up taking the ISIS tour instead, and that was with in a van. The ISIS tour was in a van. The Absu tour was on a bus. Absu is great, but on a personal level, and this is probably like where the kind of DIY like vibe comes in, where the guys in ISIS are my friends. So to me, and I think unanimously with the band, we were just like, oh, let's do those do the ISIS tours. We're all friends. You know, it was like ISIS, Pelican, and, and us. And it was on the uh, one of the winter hours tours. What's your role in the band aside from guitar playing or writing? Like you were saying about how you have to sometimes start dealing with the, the business end of people and people contacting you and you know promoters and that kind of thing um pretty much uh in in lieu of actually having like a a manager or whatever like i deal with all those sort of responsibilities that come with like ordering merchandise and dealing with our booking agents you know be our european agent or the our u.s agent dealing with the label you know talking to any sort of you know third party like vendor that we might need for you know we need someone to make buttons for us i gotta find that guy now you know or we need someone to make patches or something like that you know mm-hmm. so pretty much all the the grunt work you know, <laughs> you know is like falls with falls on my, my shoulders you know we're just in tax season right now you know what i mean so like having to deal with that kind of stuff like dealing with an accountant and you know filing taxes and everything it's like you know i'm the guy that gets the phone calls <laughs> Great. (laughs) No better guy to have that uh, fall on the shoulders of your extremely capable. If Tombs had a mission statement, what would it be? Well, you know what? Honestly, I think that having no mission statement is the best mission statement because if once you start placing expectations on yourself in the creative realm, is when you ultimately set yourself up to fail. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like probably one of the only parts of my life where you won't hear me give you a detailed goal because I really do feel that if you approach something with completely an open mind and try not to be like swayed by any sort of motivations or whatever to like oh yeah we have to like do this thing so that we can do this you know when you're being creative I feel like that is a detriment you know I feel like the best way to creatively do something is to sort of just do it and it'll form itself Mm -hmm. I mean that's that's the mission statement (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Um, so my guest is Mike Hill of Tombs, and uh, would you like to introduce the next song that you're gonna that we're gonna be listening to? Off of Eye Against Eye, we have Reignition by the Bad Brain. And what would you like to say about why you chose this? Um, I remember when I first heard this record. This is what actually made me really like the Bad Brain. I was more of a metalhead, you know. I was always more. I mean, I like the more metal sounding Black Flag stuff, and I like Slayer, and I love Black Sabbath. When I first heard the intro on this record, it made me really embrace the Bad Brains. And I was like, yeah, this is like completely right up my alley. You know, the song Reignition just has like this like brutal like groove to it. You know, and that was probably one of my favorite songs on the record. All right, so we are going to move on to that and uh, into the next set that uh, Mike Hill has programmed for us. Folks, stay tuned, and you'll hear the Bad Brains next. Hang on.
We are back with Mike Hill as my guest, VRWFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WFMU.org. And uh, what would you like to say about that track, Mike? Uh, that was uh, Roland Howard's I Know a Girl Named Johnny, which is off his uh, record Pop Crimes. And that, that came out like in 2009, and he died pretty much right after that record came out. And I was really bummed out by that because uh, old Roland S was probably one of my favorite guitar players next to Greg Ginn and Tony Iommi, I would say. And, mm. um, you know, I've been a huge fan of his since, you know, the birthday party, you know, the stuff he did, the birthday party, and uh, these immortal, the other band he's in, uh, the one who was... Uh, yeah, those immortal souls. These immortal souls. How mm-hmm. could I forget that? Yeah, with Lydia yeah. Lunch, yeah. Yeah. What a great But, uh, yeah, he was one of my favorite guitarists, man. And, and um, I remember I got that record, and it was... Uh, you know, pretty pretty amazing, and then I found out that he that he passed away. It's kind of like uh, bittersweet, you know. You know, before that we had um, Sam Hain to walk the night, or shall I say, Sawin, which is the uh, correct way, I guess. It's that is Sam the way Hain. it is pronounced. I've I've been corrected by people. <laughs> and uh, that's off November Coming Fire. Sam Hain's like probably my favorite Danzig band, even more than the Misfits. I like Sam Hain. They have like mm. this dark sort of vibe to them. Before that, right after the Bad Brains. We had Turned Inside Out by the Rollins Band off of uh, Heart Volume. And uh, that whole record is, was like my kind of early 90s, late night soundtrack, man. That was, um, I was living in Boston for a few years in the 90s, and uh, I lived right down the street from the 7-Eleven, and like pretty much every night, you know, I'd walk up to 7-Eleven, get some stuff, some snacks, you know, and walk back to my apartment that I shared with a bunch of people and I had this attic room and I just uh, hang out there by myself and listen to the Rollins band hard volume. That particular track was like, because it's so long and it has like that brutal ending, it was like definitely something I listened to deep into the night, you know. So uh, that's the last couple songs we played. Are you from the Boston area? No, no, I grew up in uh, a small town called Carmel, New York, which is like right on the Connecticut border. You know, it's suburbs. But I lived in Boston for a few years in the 90s. Uh, I wanted to touch on uh, something that you've been working on. I guess it's a um, an interview 
with um, uh, Malcolm Tent. Yeah, yeah, the Malcolm Tent of uh, Trash American Style uh, fame. It's, and, uh, it's, and it's starting key. out as, as an interview. Uh, we filmed this interview with him back in uh, the late summer of last year. You know, the goal is to develop it into like a full, you know, documentary on uh, on the work he's done over the years. And in a nutshell, his story is that Malcolm came to uh, Western Connecticut and opened up a record store called Trash American Style. At the time, this is like in the 80s, when punk and hardcore and, you know, the more obscure forms of metal were very much real underground. Like, there'd be like five kids who were into that stuff, like in their school, like not nothing, like really, really grassroots. He brought that to that area, you know, and that's very much the suburbs, you know, where at the time it was like Bon Jovi, you know, Van Halen and, you know, not that I have anything against Van Halen. I loved, I loved early Van Halen, but, you, could you know, find those only, records only anywhere. stuff you could find on the radio and mm-hmm. MTV. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm brought something new and turned a lot of people on to like some really cool stuff. And um, yeah, his store existed for uh, 25 years, in the excess of 25 years. It ended up closing, not due to any financial problem, but his uh, rat-like neighbor snaked his uh, lease out from underneath him. You know, there were some backdoor dealings, and he ended up losing the space that he had his store in. Took it out on, on the road, and he's uh, selling records and you know other things like you know T-shirts and clothing and whatnot, books. He goes on tour and sells all this stuff. Goes you know three or four days a week doing this. Does he go on tour with bands, or does he go on tour as Trash American style? He'll, uh, he'll go on tour as Trash American style, but also he does his own acoustic. Well, actually, he does many different types of bands, but he um, he also tours as a musician and brings along, you know, a distro with him. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, he's been uh, keeping it alive. Every neighborhood, every place where you grow up, I mean, there's hopefully that person. There's that catalyst that sort of turns you on to things, and uh, so you know that it exists, because... For a lot of us, it was just, you know, you wrote letters to people in the back of rock, Maximum Rock and Roll, and you got your own community started in a certain way. So um, I can hear that you're, that you're covering him because he's so important to um, where you're from. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he was around pretty much the beginning of, like, you know, the straight-edge scene, like in Connecticut. You know, bands like Youth of Today, which is, def- which is a, a Connecticut-based band, mm-hmm. um, Youth of Today. <laughs> You know, a lot of up front, like all those bands were, were just sort of getting started. And uh, there's the Anthrax Club, which was... Um, oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, that, that's like, that's very much part of the fabric, you know, of, of what Malcolm was part of. You know, he's Trash American Style, WXCI, which is like the Western Connecticut radio station, which is, you know, they have their, their punk, hardcore, metal, you know, reggae shows and whatnot. And... um I feel fortunate that I grew up around that because if there wasn't that sort of outlet, I wouldn't have had any way of connecting to something other than what I saw on MTV or heard on, like, you know, classic rock radio or whatever. Well, and and you don't know, you know, because that was there. Because, I mean, were you satisfied with what there had been on MTV or were you really looking for something when you found it? I was pretty unsatisfied because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was... A lot of stuff like, you know, like Madonna and whatnot was really big. And, you know, I, I have nothing against Madonna, man. I like the early Madonna stuff. But there's nothing that really grabbed me, like, and resonated with who I felt like I was. Like, a lot of, I feel like, and, and this might be common, but a lot of people, like, 
lot of the imagery that you get from media is sort of meant to keep you in your place somehow. Advertising and all this imagery of perfect people sort of makes you feel like you can't rise above where you are. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you then you hear like Black Flag or Minor Threat, and you hear that these this music made by people who are very much similar to you, and they've done something about it. Like they've they've taken depths in their life, they've done things, they've been motivated to move into a different sort of paradigm in their life. You know, and that's like what I took away from those early you know experiences, and that's crucial. You know, unless you want to just become like someone who's not awake, you know, and part of this machine that we live in, you know. And when did you decide to sort of take matters into your own hands and start a band? Pretty much, I mean, in high school. I had like, you know, high school bands I played in. I mean, nothing, you know, I wasn't putting out records or doing anything. But like, pretty much right after I graduated college, because I went right into college. And right after that is like when I sort of saw past the veil of like society, I guess, and realized that after trying to work, you know, like some nine to five gig and trying to toe the line as a citizen, I realized that like there's, I wasn't really meant that meant for this. Like there was other things I should be doing in my time. And um, that's what motivated me to really get deeply into uh, playing guitar and you know, just trying to be creative, you know. How does it feel now that you said you've been playing guitar for 25 years? Right. Do you feel like you, I mean, I know there's always, there's always a level to get to, but you are a master at your craft in some ways, I'm sure there's things that you still find it hard to express. With that initial dissatisfaction with um, your sort of, quote, place in society, let's say, yeah. how does that contrast now to, to your um, your journey? First of all, I don't I don't consider myself a master at anything, really. I mean, it's like, you know, there's always, like, I can, I can listen to any one of our records and point out exactly where I made mistakes or... Well, and any musician can do that. You know, but, you know. but, but there are some people, I, I think... Believing that you're a master is just like feeding the ego. Well, but there is some statistic, and I I don't mean to cut you off here, but there is some statistic about actually like having done a certain thing for a certain period of time does technically make you a master at it. And it's that's more of a business term as as opposed to me dropping on the ground on my knees and going, oh, my God, master guitarist. And I'm sure that you've seen your own progress over the years. I'm sure when you were in a band early on, you probably couldn't play things that you wanted to. And then at some point, you're like, wow, I can play this now. I'll agree that there's been progress in my playing. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I'll agree to. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I'm not saying that, like, I'm good or I know what I'm doing or any of those things because, you know, it's like, uh, you know, there's always other things to learn. I mean, as far as, like, guitar playing goes, like, I only know how to do what I do, really. You know, I mean, there's, like, I don't know how to play jazz. Like, I can't, like, you know, play classical guitar. I mean, those are things that are, like, very much just maybe a couple of percent away from playing, you know, music, like rock mm-hmm. music or whatever. Well, like yeah, and if you chose to play classical guitar and you put your mind to it the way you put your mind to these other projects, it you would become competent at it. Okay, I'll agree with that. Competence, okay. Yeah, com- <laughs> okay, so your your competency has 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 you know, blown up over time. I just, you know, wanted to see the the comparison from maybe how you felt expressing yourself to start off within bands and now if it's if it's easier because let's say your your craftsmanship is is honed better. Yeah, I feel that like just through experience and trial and error and figuring out what works and what doesn't work, I feel like more equipped to be creative. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I feel that like I'm not starting from zero. I feel like that, you know, maybe I'm somewhere on a scale of one to ten, starting further down the line at maybe six as opposed to zero. And because I've done things repeatedly many times, I feel that, you know, I can maybe get to the end point where I feel comfortable with something being complete faster than I have when I was like 18 or something. Mm. You know? So how long was the recording process for Path of Totality? Just under two weeks. We we like to do a lot of preparation when we get into a recording situation. So, I mean, we there was no like, you know, experimenting or there were very little experimental stuff going on. We just had everything pretty much as tight as possibly could be musically. Went down to the studio, executed everything, and then tried to spend as much time on mixing as possible because that's usually where all the time gets eaten up. And unfortunately, those are the days that you end up having to let the, the least amount of as the days spent to mix an album. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that, like, you know, we had enough time and, you know, Relapse was uh, was generous enough to work with our wants and needs. So I feel like we had ample time to get to get everything complete. That's, uh, and how does that compare to the winter hours process? I feel like winter hours... Overall, was a was a great experience too. I mean, we had we I felt like the band was prepared uh, well enough, but you know there were some personnel issues during that period of time that I think may have affected some of the stuff on the album and mm-hmm. may have made things taking a little bit longer than they normally would have. But you know those that that problem was fixed by the time we got to the patch mentality. You have the biggest sound for a three piece that I've ever heard. Actually, we're a four piece now. You are. Yeah, we added a second guitar player. When you recorded Path of Totality? Well, actually, the, the album record, the recording is still just me, but live, we have um, another guitarist. Oh, do tell. Alan. Actually, we've had two different guys over the last couple of years in the band playing second guitar. Uh, first uh, is our, my friend Nick, Nick Angelari, who was playing with us for most of the year. You know, he played at Murphy's Law for a while. He was in this band, Inhuman, uh, mm-hmm. which is like a lot of my other friends, Mike Scandato, um, you know, Joe Porvito. Although a lot of people I know are really playing other you know, in that band and human. Nick also played in that band. Uh-huh. And uh, he spent some time playing with us, but he had some like, uh, you know, family related stuff, which prohibited him from making it down to the recording session and uh, continuing with the band. You know, we recorded as a four, as a three piece. And then uh, we recruited Dan to uh, join up with us for the live touring situations that arose. Yeah, I mean, we have live, we have a second guitar player now, and that makes things, like, way more, you know, full-sounding. Um, there is somebody who's on the playlist who says that they grew up in Carmel, New York, and they wanted to know if you could divulge any of the names of your high school bands. No, definitely not. Okay. I'm afraid someone's going to know who it is. And they're <laughs> like, hey, man, you're just going to have to do your research, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay. you have to, like, try to find some flyers or something like that. Or And this is... Thankfully, all before the internet was around. Yeah, and there's a few people who are shouting out to Trash American Styles. It's definitely getting some recognition. Nice. There, so, very good. So, and, and your piece on Trash American Styles, just get back, that's on, that's in the Everything Bl- Went Black Media? That's correct. You can actually, um, there's a couple places you can watch it. It's on YouTube, on the um, Everything Went Black Media video channel. It's on Vimeo. It's embedded in the blog, Everything Went Black, with a WordPress blog. Oh, cool. And there's also an Everything Went Black Media Facebook page, which you can get to 
um, probably, I think, from the Tombs page or from my own personal page. Yeah, it's any one of those sources you can watch. It. It's an eight-minute clip. It's uh, an interview with Malcolm. There's a you know, small performance piece at the end. It's the first step in doing like a full documentary piece on it. And uh, there's still a lot of work we have to do, but that's the, you know, it's the beginning. Well, that's great that you're taking that on because, you know, I don't know if he, um, if he cares, but sometimes people like that. They just dive into things and they don't really get thanked. And then all of a sudden something like the weird thing happens with his, uh, with his lease. And he's just like, wow, okay. So I don't have a store and I walk away or I do what I do, but there's not, there's, you know, there may or may not have been like a party or any kind of, you know, there's sometimes that's a thankless position to be in. Well, what kind of motivated me was I, I saw a documentary called I Need That Record, which um, it's on Netflix streaming. They had Malcolm in there and along with some other people who, whose names escape me right now. And like, you know, like one guy closed his doors and he had taken a job at like Trader Joe's or something like that. Mm. And I'm just like, I'm like, yeah, man, it's, you know, I understand you gotta, you gotta, you gotta keep on keeping on, but it's, it's a shame that how things panned out. And like the thing that got me was like Malcolm's gameness, you know, it's like his heart. And that is like going to do what he wants to do. And I think that that's an inspiration for anyone who wants to do something that's like difficult or hard or might not seem like, you know, there's, there's any immediate payoff in it, you know, and I was really, really inspired by that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've known him for years just by going to the shop and I'd actually done like a, a, a podcast with him like a year before. So, We'd already had this sort of dialogue, you know, together, and, and it just made sense to do some sort of, you know, documentary piece on it. Um, can you introduce the next song for us? Okay, the next song we got is uh, Eternally Is Here off of Las Vegas Story by the band Gun Club. You know, so it's a great song. It's like another one of my late night soundtrack songs, so take it away. All right, there we go. We'll be back with Mike Hill in a little bit. This world I never told you Yes, we all had this too
And we have returned. We've got uh, Mike Hill here. And uh, if you could just talk about what we just heard. Okay, coming out of the Gun Club uh, track, Eternally is here, we got Hybrid Moments by Misfits off of the Legacy Brutality record. And um, Misfits, uh, as well as Sam Hain and even you know Danzig, always been a huge fan just because of, you know, Danzig loves comics and horror movies and, you know, dark music. And that pretty much uh, nails all of my interests. So, there mm-hmm. you go. Uh, out of that, we're going to TSOL, Sounds of Laughter, off of Dance With Me, which came out way, way back in 1981. And uh, TSOL were, you know, a lot of my favorite bands are West Coast bands from that era, and um, TSOL kind of, like, differentiated themselves as they were, like, a little bit more theatrical, like, a little bit more, you know, darker than, like, a lot of the bands, sort of, from that time frame. And um, into that, we have uh, Rorschach Brain Handle, which is off the Rorschach Neanderthal split. The reason, you know, Rorschach is Rorschach, they're mighty. They're probably one of the most powerful bands I've ever seen. Apparently they're playing again. In yeah, they are. They um, they did some West Coast shows last summer, and yeah. uh, and I think that they just confirmed some shows. I know they're playing a, a Maryland Death Fest this year. Yeah, that I knew. I think I think I saw something about them playing in New York. I'm definitely going to be going to that. Yeah, I think that that just came out like two days ago or something. Yeah, I'm not usually not a fan of reunions, but Rorschach Golf is an exception. No, they to, can bring it. I've seen all those shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I missed them when they did those those run of dates because uh, we were out on the on tour. I was really bummed out that I got a, you know I didn't get a chance to see him play. Mm. And then uh, the last uh, song in that set was uh, tribute by a, a band Alaric, which is um, as I'm looking at this list here, probably one of the only new songs that uh, <laughs> that I selected. Mm-hmm. That's uh, feature though it's a new band. It features veteran guys. It's like someone from uh, New Crush. The drummer I believe is in the UK subs. And the singer was in uh, a band called uh, Dead and Gone. You know, all day California guys. Yeah, for, great. Obviously, the UK subs guy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's uh, something that's been been pretty pretty heavily listened to the last several months. When I first heard about them, I thought they were British because they have like that sort of killing joke, you know, Joy Division kind of vibe to it. Very much pulling from like that late '70s, early '80s kind of post-punk like vibe. I would love to see them live, man, you know, but I don't, I don't see any plans of them coming out here to the East Coast. Well, we'll see. And you may cross paths with them. You may be fortunate enough to cross paths with them in some other way, you know. That's what I hope for. Yeah. That's what I really hope yeah. for. So is there a band that, that uh, like you had said, that you missed the first um, bunch of Rorschach reunion because you guys were out on tour? Is there a band that you keep on missing, like seeing live because of the Tombs um, performance schedule? Yeah, that happens a lot, actually. But eventually, I catch up to everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, good. So there's not there's is there one that like got away kind of? I'm trying to think, that's a good question. And nothing comes to mind like that I missed in New York, but wasn't able to see elsewhere. Usually, I mean, one one when Trypticon came, they played in New York the very last day of a tour that I just finished up. However, my girlfriend and I drove up to Boston to see Trypticon play. Nice. And that was really cool. That was pretty. I wasn't able, I wasn't spoiled by seat. You know, I was able to make it up there and see Trypticon do their thing. Mike, is there anything else that you want the listeners to know before we talk about your last song and then uh, kind of get into the goodbye state? Well, thanks for having me. I had a yeah. great time. It was a lot of fun. Mike Hill of Tombs, and we're going to go into the last song. Please give us something to go out on with. The last song, 
a great way to end this set is Apparatus by Dead Guy off of Fixation on a Coworker, hailing from New Jersey as well. And uh, anything you want to say about that song in particular? Or? I could, their whole body of work, man, is, is like <laughs> just like one massive beatdown, in my opinion. You know, like any, <laughs> I could have just like grabbed any any track, and mm-hmm. it would have been equally as like impressive. So I mean, that one was something. I'm like, oh, you know, this song, this song sounds like it should be in here. You know, yeah, probably like you know, Dead Guy and Rorschach, as far as like hardcore music goes, like you know, post like the later era of hardcore. That's what hardcore is all about to me. Your bands like Dead Guy and Rorschach. Well, so thank you. Thanks so much for being part of the program. And I know that, you know, we ran over and thank you for your time and the preparation. And uh, just thanks for your commitment to uh, to heavy music because it does show. And, uh, you know, you, you've been a friend of FMU's for a long time. And I'm always happy to, to, to get the word out there. And so uh, the last track from our guest DJ is from Dead Guy. Thanks to Mike Hill. Stay tuned, folks. <laughs> And that wraps it up for today's podcast. Thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for all the other background work. We are WFMU.